0: Well, as I was saying there, we have a God who reveals himself to us, um, in part, just in, in our world and in nature, but more specifically, and in an authoritative, trustworthy way in his word. And one of the functions of God's word, especially as we gather together like this, but in many other ways as well, is to shape us and form us and correct our view of God. Our view of God is not something that we just learn once and then quickly move off for on from and get it all down. We, we have lies and wrong ideas and inconsistencies in our thinking about God um, to some degree or another. And the passage before us today touches on an area where we are regularly prone to get God wrong, where we so easily don't see him for who he is. And that is this. What is God's attitude towards us when we sin? What is God's attitude, his disposition towards his people in their sin? How does God see us? What are his thoughts, his actions, his disposition, his heart towards us in our sin, guilt, and shame? Wonder how you would answer that. How would you answer that? How does God see you when you sin? Perhaps more importantly, not, not just what would you put to words, but how, does, how do you really feel? How do you really practically see God when in the midst of your sin? How does your heart, your affections, your emotions behold God in that moment? Is he shaking his head in frustration? Is he throwing up his hands in disbelief? One more time, you failed again. Is he withdrawing from you just a bit until you get things back on tra- track? Does he begrudgingly give you another chance just because he has, has to? That's, that's, you know, that's what it means to be a loving God. Is he like an angry and exasperated father yelling at you that you failed once again? Or even does his, his compassion and his affection for you get tempered just a little bit? Does he tone it down a little bit? Again, what do you really believe that God thinks of you, that God is towards you in your sin? So we're going to take two weeks to unpack this section in Hebrews before us today that will help us work through this. Today, we're going to spend most of our time on just one verse. uh, Hebrews 4.15, there was a, a ton to draw from this one verse. Uh, but I want to read through the whole passage today to get the idea of how it's structured um, and we'll cover more of it next week. So let me read through this this whole passage, starting at Hebrews four fourteen, and we're going to go through 510. Since then, so there's a lot of uh, transitional uh, phrases in Hebrews. so this Turns our attention back to the previous section, and we'll, we'll make this connection a little bit more next week. But just note that this is connecting with what we looked at last week. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So there's going to be two implications or kind of commands in, that are based off of the truths in here. This is the first one of them. Let us hold fast our confession. We'll cover that next week. Here's the verse 15 that we're going to focus in on today. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, and this is going to be another implication, let us then, because of this, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Chapter 5. 4. Now, chapter 5, this is going to give a, a begin a long explanation about the role of a high priest and what kind of high priest Jesus is to us. For Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's a quote that Hebrews quoted earlier, if you remember. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A few more verses. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So again, our goal today, we're going to zero in on that one verse, 415, and our goal is simply this, to behold, to meditate, to reflect on, to know more within ourselves the heart of God for sinners like us. It's a wonderful verse. Hear the verse one more time. Verse 415. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So this passage is going to use the example of a high priest to describe Jesus' role and relationship to us. Now, you might be saying, I don't know very much about the role of the high priest, this Old Testament uh, role, so that doesn't really help me much. So, let's first unpack what is contained in this, this role, this image. So, in the Old Testament, the whole sacrificial system was designed and given by God to be a teaching tool. The role of the high priest, the cleansing rituals that high priests had to go through, The temple in which they served, the the most holy place in the temple where God's presence dwelt, the sacrifices they offered, all of this was meant to communicate important realities to the people. God was teaching them through all of this. And there are two fundamental realities that this system intended to teach. Firstly, through this system was God was teaching the people that sin is a serious thing. And the sin must be sufficiently dealt with if we are to draw near to God. Our sin, in essence, is rejecting our Creator's God, creator God's rule over our lives. And the Bible tells us that through this, we make ourselves enemies of God. As we reject his rule, we decide we want to rule our own lives rather than our creator, rather than submit to our creator. We make ourselves enemies, enemies of God. And we deserve nothing less than separation from his goodness and death. So, something significant has to be done about this. Something has to be done to bring a holy, perfect God and sinful mankind back together in peace and joyful fellowship. We need to be purified and cleansed. We need to be cured of our rebellion, our rebellious nature. And God's justice must be satisfied. We need God to not only be to not simply be lenient but to be gracious. But secondly, this whole system of rituals and roles, priests, cleansing rituals, temple sacrifice, through all of this, God was revealing that he was going to do something that he himself would do something to overcome human sin and bring humanity back to himself. Even as he reveals that sin is a serious thing, at the very same time, he reveals that he will do something about it. He will do something to bring us near to him so that we can draw near to him, so that we can have and enjoy and rest in his favor and his presence. We can know and experience all the goodness that is in him. Sin will not have the last word. God will be gracious with us. He will deal graciously with us. God was revealing this all the way back then through through this sacrificial system. Now, this doesn't mean that sin no longer matters or that there's no need for repentance or brokenness or turning to God. God's grace is abused by the suggestion that we can just continue to live in sin, love our sin, ignore God, and just be covered by grace. No, that makes light of both sin and grace. God has made a way for us to draw near to him, to to come into his presence, but we must come through his way, not our own. We must trust in what he has done and his sufficiency, not ourselves and our efforts. So this whole system was a, a teaching tool. All of these rituals and roles made this clear. They taught about who God is, who we are, and our need for his grace. But Jesus made it happen. Or Jesus fulfilled it, right? God accomplished it in Jesus. Everything that God w- revealed in this Old Testament sacrificial system, he accomplished once and for all in Jesus. So Jesus is the better temple with whom God, within whom God dwells. Jesus is the better high priest, the mediator between God and man, bringing man and God together. Jesus offers the better sacrifice, his own life. So that we can enter into a better holy place, the presence of God, with confidence. As verse 16 says, draw near in confidence. So that's what's going on in calling Jesus a high priest. That's a little bit about this institution that Hebrews is getting at. That's the big picture. But if you read this section closely you see that in focusing specifically on this role of a high priest, in focusing, in narrowing in on Jesus as a high priest, Hebrews is focusing on the ongoing role of Jesus. On Jesus' work to be an ongoing mediator, presence, priest to us right now. A high priest is an ongoing mediator, someone you go to again and again who's a living, personal relationship there. Hebrews will go on to say in chapter 7, he, Jesus, lives to, always lives to make intercession for us. So we talk a lot about what Jesus did in the past, once and for all, for us, on the cross. Jesus made a one-time sacrifice for our sins for all time. And, that, and that's here as well. But here, more specifically, we are talking about the continual, ongoing role of Jesus in light of what he's done. Who is he to us in light of his sacrifice? Again, what is God's heart to you right now if you are in Christ? How will he receive you, whoever you are, in Christ, outside of Christ? How will he receive you when you come to him? How will he receive you when you come to him mired in your sin? How will he receive you when you come to him feeling the weight of guilt and shame? How will he receive you when you come to him in the midst of suffering that you cannot get yourself out of? What kind of high priest, mediator, will he be? And that's what this verse tells us. And there was a lot that we could unpack in this one verse. We could spend hours on, the, on this. We are not going to spend hours on it today, but you could. You could go home and spend hours on this and just think of this all week. For our purposes, begin by noticing two things verse 15 says. Jesus as a high priest is sinless, and Jesus as a high priest is sympathetic towards sinners. Jesus as a high priest is sinless. And Jesus as a high priest is sympathetic to us in our weaknesses, sin, suffering. First, he is sinless. Uh, we're, we're told that he was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. Hebrews will go on to say in chapter 7, he was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. Because he is, because he is holy and, and unstained by sin. He is, in some respect, separate from us. That's what the word holy means. He's, he's set apart in a sense. There's no stain or blemish in him. There's no deception, hint, no hint of evil. He is pure goodness, pure beauty, loveliness, pure righteousness, pure worth. And part of the idea here, in that... Because he is holy and unstained, he is the most valuable of sacrifices. And so in the Old Testament, the Israelites were to bring a firstborn animal with no defects for their sacrifices. Um, to bring a lame or blind or sick animal was to, to pollute God's altar and despise God's name. This would be to give something that you didn't, had no need for, that was useless to you, the, the leftovers, what you really didn't want, say, sure, God, you can have this. Likewise, well, in contrast to that, Jesus is of utmost value, not only as a human, but as the perfect God-man, and he gives, gives the gift, not of a perfect animal, but the gift of himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Um, earlier in Hebrews, it said um, that by the grace of God, he tasted death for everyone. Jesus gives himself, tastes death, and, and the value of the gift that he gives is immeasurable. Sufficient to cover the sins of all people, of all who would come. So understand right there that Jesus' sacrifice for your sins is completely sufficient. No matter what your sin no matter how many your sins, no matter how long your battle with sins, no matter how heavy the guilt you feel, the willing death of Jesus, because of the love for God for you, is sufficient to cover it all and to bring you into complete peace and favor with God. Do you know that? Do you rest in that? Now, as good and wonderful as, and necessary as it is, as that is, that he be sinless, the attribute of Jesus that this passage focuses on is not his sinlessness, is not how different and distinct and separate he is, but is his ability to sympathize with sinners. This passage zeroes in on actually how near and present and, in many ways, alike us he is. Read the verse one more time. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So there's two halves of this verse, and they both say the same thing, but in different ways. So the first part of the verse is, is it states it negatively. Jesus is not unable to sympathize with us. Paul didn't get the message about double negatives. Jesus, Jesus is able to sympathize with us is what it says, right? And then the second half of the verse says the same thing, but in a positive way. Jesus has been tempted, or the word could be tested, in every respect that we are. In other words, because of his experience, because of his lived experience of temptation and testing, he is able to sympathize with us and our weaknesses, Not simply in a kind of distant, far-off way because he sees them and, no, but because he has lived our life. He has been tempted and tested as we are. Now, the first question you might ask in hearing that is, well, what was his experience? Was it really like, like us? Can he really understand? I think there are two passages that shed the most light on this and that help us out in this where Jesus was tested and tempted. So, one is his temptation at the beginning of his ministry by the devil. Um, We read in Luke 4, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. So essentially, in, in these two instances, the, the devil is tempting Jesus to stop trusting in God. To, to be discontent in God his Father, to be discontent in himself. Use your powers to turn this stone into bread. Don't trust God, find some other means. Or worship me, and you can have all authority and glory right now. You can have everything in the world. Maybe you don't have to go through what is coming. And this is not unlike the temptations we face. We are tempted to get what we want, to get the things that we crave and desire, right now, even if it means turning from God, even if it means stop ceasing to trust in God, ceasing to be content with the things that God has given us. Whether that be power and honor, advancement, security, a happy family, a stable marriage, Appearance of having all things together. Wealth. If God won't give it to us, we'll take things into our own hands. Jesus knows this temptation. Jesus has felt, has endured this temptation and testing. He has felt this kind of pressure. But then you have the temptation at the end of Jesus' life and the testing of the days leading up to his death, when Jesus knew full well what was coming. Luke 22, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and unless and, and, and you think that Jesus did not really struggle. But because of, he was God, he did not really struggle with this. Verse 44, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, Jesus is not being tempted because he has sinful desires and impulses in him. And for that, we should be thankful. He remained sinless. But he was really tempted and really tested. He was tempted and tested from external pressures and certainly from the acute knowledge of what was coming. Jesus was going to be abandoned by his Father, though temporarily. But really, he was going to experience abandonment by his Father. He was going to experience the fullness of sin and judgment as he bore it on the cross. Both of these are experiences that you and I, if we are his, will never have to endure. Jesus was about to endure them, and he knew that. And surely there was the temptation, the pressure of, to wonder, to to give up, to doubt his father's care, to to be faithless, to say, is there another way? If there was ever a time to question God's goodness, if ever there was a moment where a person had the right to question God's goodness, it, it was here, more than any other time in your life, in my life. If there was a time where you would say, well, maybe God wasn't good. Jesus stood firm. Jesus continued on faithfully. He did not give in to temptation, to the pressure, to the agony, the sweat that became like grape drops of blood. He said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he didn't withstand so that he could, you know, go through this and then look back and down on us and say, I did it. Come on. He didn't do this so that he could look down on us in pride and disappointment, but so that, we are told, he could understand us. And so Jesus was tempted by the lies of the devil, as we are. He was tempted by the pressures of the world around him, as we are. He was tempted by the... He, he experienced the weaknesses and sufferings of being human, as we do. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, you might respond, and we, we might respond and, and say, well, I don't see Jesus suffering in exactly the same way I do. I don't, experience, I don't see him experiencing the same temptations I do, dealing with the sinful desires. So how can I know that he understands and can sympathize with me in what I go through? And I would say... Certainly, there is always going to be a need for faith in this, to just believe what we are told here, that he can sympathize with us. But I would also say, if you reflect on those moments leading up to his death, where he is in great agony, where his tears are like great drops of blood, it is hard to come away feeling like he can't understand the depths of your suffering and weakness and temptation. And so God wants us to know that the suggestion that no one can understand what we are going through is a lie. God wants us to know that the suggestion that no one has walked in your shoes is a lie. And that all of your feelings of despair and hopelessness and pity and bitterness, which can lead us to isolate ourselves from others and from God, is based on a lie. God is trying to correct that lie. Which brings us to the first part of this verse. We kind of unpack that second part about his experience. But then we have this statement in the first part. For we do not have a high priest who is able, unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Again, if you take out the double negative, Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Uh, the word Sympathize, the word translated sympathize, means to have compassion, pity, to share the same suffering or emotion. This is Jesus' attitude or his heart or his disposition towards us in our weaknesses. Weaknesses includes our temptations. This word can also be translated testing or testings or temptations. Weaknesses includes our suffering, as Jesus himself also suffered. Now, I imagine that it's easier for us to agree and feel that Jesus is sympathetic with our suffering. We say, well, of course. I mean, God is good. God is loving. Of course, he sympathizes sympathizes with us when we suffer in our non-sinful weaknesses and abilities, the things that just happen to us. Of course he does. But what about our sin? What is his heart towards us? Does he still have compassion and pity and sympathy towards us when we, as his children, sin? Consider a couple things in the next few verses. So verse 16 is certainly not there by accident. The very next verse. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So there is an implied promise there. If we draw near to him, we will receive mercy and grace, grace. If we draw near to him, we will receive undeserved favor and welcome and affection. In the words of Psalm 103, he will not deal with us according to our sins. Otherwise, we would not be told to draw near with confidence. It doesn't say, draw near with with great hope that he will deal mercifully with you. Draw near crossing your fingers. Draw near that it's been a good day for God. No, draw near with confidence that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. If we draw near to him in our weaknesses, be it temptation, be it the weight of guilt, be it suffering... Be any amount of things beyond our control that we are needing help for, what will we find? A heart of mercy and grace, compassion, pity, a willingness to suffer with us. It, called, it says his throne is a throne of grace. Yes, his throne is also a throne of great might and power, of sovereign rule, of perfect wisdom and righteousness, and a throne of fear for all who would refuse to come. But just as much, it is a throne characterized by grace for all who are his, for all who would come. Now, if that weren't enough, there is another phrase here that continues to press this home. So, chapter 5 begins by talking about the human priests of the Old Testament. Just the first couple of verses says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Now, it is true that in context here, this is speaking of human priests who are themselves sinful, but this word that is translated two words in in most of our Bibles, deal gently, shares a common root with sympathize in, in 4.15. Deal gently, sympathize, and surely in light of 415 and 416, the point is not that human priests can be more sympathetic, can be more gentle than Jesus as our high priest. No, surely we are supposed to see that Jesus too can and does deal gently with, who does it say, the ignorant and wayward. Jesus can and does deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. No offense, but that includes you and I. The Old Testament spoke of intentional sins and unintentional sins, and so this seems to be getting at the same idea. We we sin in both ways, intentionally, unintentionally, ignorant and and wayward. And so it's abundantly clear what Jesus' attitude is, what his heart is, towards his blood-bought people in their sin. Sympathy, compassion, deal gently. He sees that sin is damaging us. He sees the guilt is weighing heavy on us, and he wants us to come to him for relief and help. Our sin is part of our suffering, and as such, Jesus is sympathetic and compassionate towards us. Um. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortlund, um has two chapters based on, on, on what we're looking at here. Um, he, he writes this. Consider what this means. When we sin, we are encouraged to bring our mess to Jesus because he will know just how to receive us. He doesn't handle us roughly. He doesn't scowl and scold. He doesn't lash out the way many of our parents did. And all this restraint on his part is not because he has a diluted view of our sinfulness. He knows our sinfulness far more deeply than we do. Indeed, we are aware of just the tip of the iceberg of our depravity, even in our most searching moments of self-knowledge. His restraint simply flows from his tender heart for his people. Hebrews is not telling us that instead of scolding us, Jesus loves us. It is telling us the kind of love he has. Rather than dispensing grace to us from on high, he gets down with us. He puts his arm around us. He deals with us in a way that is just what we need. He deals gently with us. And here is what this means. This means that sin or knowledge of sin or feelings of guilt and shame should never keep us from coming to God. Sin should never keep us from coming to God. Facing the mess we've made of our lives should never keep us from coming to God. Realizing that we are so far short, so unworthy of God's love should never keep us from coming to God. No, God in his word, in this verse, refutes every lie that would keep us from coming to him. The only reason that we don't come to him in the end is because we are simply unwilling to believe what he says or too prideful to think that we actually need him. Either way, we refuse what he freely offers. We refuse what he has already purchased and secured in the death of Jesus. It is not our weaknesses. It is not our sin It is not our guilt that keeps us from Jesus and the life that is in him. It is only and always our refusal to come. A professor of preaching that I I once had makes the point that every scripture passage is there because, because of a need in us. There's something about our fallen condition that every scripture is there to address and help. And so when God tells us that Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses, that he understands the depths of temptations that we face, and that nothing should diminish our confidence to draw near to his throne, he tells us this in part because we are tempted to believe otherwise. That we are tempted to think otherwise of God. That what we've done makes us too far gone for Jesus, that He couldn't understand, that He wouldn't receive us, that He would be less than thrilled to welcome us home, that we can't have confidence in coming to Him. So, what are the lies that you are believing that keep you from drawing near to God? Lies about yourself, lies about your sin, lies about the character and heart of God. If it keeps you from drawing near to God, in any moment, with confidence, it is a lie. No sin, no matter how heinous, will keep, you from, will keep God from receiving you with joy. No ongoing battle with sin, no matter how well or poorly you are doing, will keep God from receiving you with joy if you come. His is a throne of grace for all who would come. And we have that promise that he will receive us with mercy and we will find grace to help in time of need. If only we would come. Let's pray.